when Mike mentioned about, for those of you who are not members of the church, going to uh, planning center, church center, and finding our church, and he mentioned the gold and black logo, Solid Rock Church, that is true. The gold and black, though, is no affiliation or affinity for the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is Redskins country. This is, this is Washington football team, Commanders country. So I so want to make sure you understand where you are. Don't let the color of the logo fool you. All right, so each week at the end of every sermon, pretty much we do two things. Usually we do Q&A and we do communion. And it's kind of a staple of what we do. But lately, for different reasons, the, the questions sometimes come in later when we're wrapping up and we're moving on. And sometimes good questions that were asked weren't there when Mike was waiting for the questions to come in and they come in afterwards. And so today we're going to do something different because there were a few questions that came in last week that came in while we were already in the process of doing communion that we thought it would be helpful to answer in light of uh, just the current cultural climate. Last week, if you were here and you heard the message, it was the end of Romans 14, and a lot of the application of it was the topic of abortion, the Roe v. Wade decision. So a lot of questions came in about that particular topic. And again, when, when Mike is waiting for questions to come in, it's an app, so you type it in, and it might take a few minutes. Well, if nothing's there, then he'll just give me, the, give me the thumbs up, and then we'll just move on to communion. But what we realized was there were a couple of questions that we thought would have loved to have answered last week because it just fit the flow of the moment. But instead, we're going to ask, Mike's going to ask a couple of those questions now just to answer them briefly. So we're going to kind of start differently today. We're going to start with just a few of those questions that we think were helpful and that we'll jump into our passage for today. So, Mike, whenever you're ready, whatever ones you feel like you, I don't remember. I just remember when we were like, oh, that was a good question that could have been asked. Mm-hmm. All right. A lot of these are two, two pointers, two questions in the I guess really people really affected people by the be message. Double, people be double dipping. So, uh, yeah, yeah. PG count, baby. Um, I got a six-part question, so the first part. Uh, okay, you, you may have answered this question, so, so this is just a warm-up joint. Um, if you think political abortion is a disputable matter, but abortion is, but abortion, the act itself is evil, do you think abortion should be legal? So that gets into a deeper question. Like we don't, so we don't, we're not Old Testament Israel where we live in a theocracy. So we live in a country where there are tons of different people in this country. And not everyone is a Christian. In fact, most of the politicians that make policies, they're not believers. Most of the, the, the people who wrote the Constitution is not a, a biblical document. So I don't expect people who are not Christian to want, accept, or have biblical worldview, biblical value. So in a perfect world, should abortion exist under any circumstance? In a perfect world, no. I don't think it's the will of the Lord. 
at all. But I understand that we don't live in a country where everyone is a Christian. Most of the politicians are unregenerate. They're not, they're not there to glorify God. And so I understand why there are laws that rival what we as Christians think because we don't live in a Christian nation. We don't live in a country that is, and to be honest with you, if we're being honest, you know, Old Testament Israel had the law of God directly from Moses, and it didn't really work out well for them either. So I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm, I'm not like a big, like to me, I'm going to live in whatever the laws of the lands are and figure out how to glorify God. I'm not going to agree with every law or think every law was there, but I'm also not going to act like everyone should be submitted to the way God thinks because these people don't know the Lord. And so in that sense, do I think it should be legal in all situations? No. But I think if laws are saying you can never get one in the life of the mother's in danger and that's a choice that they want to make, that's a different conversation. So as a law, no. But if that law passes, I accept that on some level as a Christian and figure, okay, how do I honor the Lord in this cultural context? I'm just not one who thinks this country is a Christian nation and should apply the Constitution through a biblical lens. And I think a lot of us are getting frustrated because they're not. And my, I'm getting frustrated that we think they should. All right, uh, here's another, uh, another question, um, has a couple of question marks in it, but, um, uh, but, but, but it's, it's a good question. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade, I'm just, we're at the beginning of the sermon, <laughs> and so here are a couple of questions from one person. So is there a point where, um, where it would be advisable, though not a matter of sin, for Christians to stop patronizing companies and institutions like Disney that are involved in things that are profoundly sinful, LGBTQ, abortion, et cetera. And is there a further point where being a customer of those companies, while they promote sin, would itself become sinful? Those are good questions. So, so this is 100% a Romans 14 issue. 100% a Romans 14 issue. Let me explain what I mean. We live in, again, in a non-Christian society, and God has not given Christians only the ability to do everything, right? So we go to not, my doctor I don't think is a believer. I'm not going to be like, hey, do you believe in Christ? No, I'm sorry, fam, I'm not, you can't describe me no medicine. Like, I'm not, you know, we just don't, we don't do that. And so it's a Romans 14 issue in the sense that some people will feel, I don't want to support this company. I don't think it's sinful to be like, I'm not supporting Disney or all right. these. I don't think it's sinful to do that. Right. I think it's sinful to think that all Christians should abandon this because that's a conscious issue. So to prove the point, let me just, I just want to read you a list of companies that publicly that make it clear that they are anti-Christian. Now, this organization double checks and triple checks to make sure they're not throwing any companies under the bus. Let me just, I'm going to skim through a list and just read to you some companies that do not have no desire for Christ to be glorified the way we say that we do. Here we go. I'm just going to skim through. There's a bunch of them. All right, here we go in alphabetical order. Abercrombie and Fitch. Some of y'all got that shirt on now. Airbnb. Amazon Services. American Airlines. American Express. AMC. Angie's List. Apple. 
My whole ecosystem is Apple. All right, AT&T, Banana Republic. Some of y'all got some jeans on now. Bank of America, Barnes and Nobles, Ben and Jerry, Best Buy. Capital One, Chevron, Coca-Cola. Colgate, Comcast, CVS, Delta Airlines, DirecTV, Dropbox, eBay, Evernote, Facebook, Gap, General Electric, Goldman Sachs, Google, Groupon, HBO, Intel Corporation, JP Morgan Chase, Kellogg Company. Hey, listen. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not giving up no Frosted Flakes, but I don't care what you believe. I don't care who you believe in, unless you put Satan on the box. I'm not giving no Frosted I need to, but I ain't giving up no Frosted Flakes. Kraft Foods, Levi, Marriott, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, Nike, Nordstrom, Office Depot, Orbitz, PayPal, Pepsi. Yeah. Now, Pepsi is satanic. I believe that Pepsi is. I mean, I could just go down the list. So the, I'm saying this to say this. It's a Romans 14 issue because at what point does your Christian conviction choose one company over another? If none of these companies should glorify God, then we're all about to be Amish. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No electricity, no. So at, at some point, we have to say, listen, my personal conviction is that I'm not supporting this company. There may come a day where I'm like, you know what? I'm not supporting Apple anymore. Today is not that day. There may come a day when I say, you know what? I'm not eating Kellogg's. But it'll probably be when I take my last breath. So they're going to be. It's a Romans 14 issue, and so the problem is when we say no Christian should, well, the scripture doesn't say that. Right. And then secondly with this, now the second part of the question is, is it, does it to some degree become sinful to support it? I think there are certain things that you could say yes, but that really depends on the heart, right? Here's what, I said this in the first two weeks ago. Here's what we have to understand, and this is what I, I feel like from my, my, my limited observation of the broader microcosm of the evangelical church, here's, here's what I feel like. We don't really get this. We feel like if we're passionate about it, or even if it's sinful, it's what they're proposing, that you must be against it. But here's the thing. When you stand before the Lord and give an account, he knows what you really supported and what you really believed in. Mm -hmm. He knows if you really support all that these people stand for. And he knows if you were using it because it was available. And the problem is we, you know, you know when the Bible said, for man judges on the outside, but God judges the heart. Remember that? Remember when, when, when Samuel was looking for the next king and he was looking for David's brothers, he was like, oh, yeah. He, he was like, no, 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 not, not him. He said, man judges on the outside, God judges the heart. A lot of times what's happening now because of such because of the political fervor and the we're, we're living in systemic anxious times. This is systemic anxiety that we're around. Everything is about fear of this and fear of that. No, no. And it's just like, OK, so in, in a culture like that, 
you know, God knows that like what you really believe in. And so if you buy something or stand for something, if you support something, you'll give an account to that for God. But God knows the difference between I really support this, what the, the, uh, the, the morality of this organization, or I'm using the tools that God gave them for my provision. There's a difference. And what's happened now in the church is we think we judge the outside and not the intentions of the heart. And we think, oh, you, you, did, you voted this way, then you're... When you stand before the Lord, he will know this is who you really were. This is what you really believe. And he will reward you or take rewards away from that. And that's what we have to, we have to get to. None of us, I don't care who it is, I didn't do this, whoever your favorite theologian is, I don't, they did not die on the cross for your sins. Yeah. I don't yeah. care how popular an artist is, I don't care who, they didn't die, they're not on the judgment seat and they don't know the intentions of your heart. And on some level, even we don't always understand the intentions of our heart. Right. But the right. Lord does. And so there's a difference between I support the morality of this company and I'm using this company because it benefits me. Big difference. Yeah. All right. Uh, two, two more, two more, two more. Um, okay, yeah, I'll go with this one first. Um, <clears throat> you said that uh, in your sermon, you said that uh, no one is as offended as Jesus, as offended as Jesus is at abortion. You also mentioned that a pastor saying, you're not a Christian if you don't believe life begins at conception, chapter and verse. Um, do I need to be offended by abortion to be following Jesus? Um, I get the point that the sermon was making to not be offended by those who are offended by me believing abortion should be legal, but how can I then still work toward change? Can I not work towards trying to change others' beliefs without attacking? So it's very layered. I think some of today's message will actually speak to that. So I'll just say this, and then if it doesn't make sense, whoever asked the question say, can I repeat what I said last week? <laughs> so when I say like you're not more offended than Jesus, this is the thing we have to understand, right? So let's, let's, Mark, in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Jesus was tempted by the devil. Everyone knows this, right? Who knows this? And one of the temptations was, it said this, and the devil took Jesus and showed him all the kingdoms of the world at a moment's time. So for whatever, however the devil did that, because we know he's not God, he doesn't have that kind of ability, but for that particular temptation, the devil was allowed to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in one moment. Mm -hmm. And then said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. So however long that was, it was probably just a moment where God gave him, the devil, the ability to let Jesus see every kingdom of the world and all the people who are just going to sin and be wicked and need Jesus. So Jesus saw that at the beginning of his ministry, right? So if for no other reason, Jesus knows by the devil's temptation that the world is going to be a really dark, wicked place, all right? That's the beginning of his ministry. Everything Jesus said after that, all the stuff like, if you want to be treated a certain way, treat other people that way. That's the law and the prophets. All the things Jesus said, the Good Samaritan story, right, which we'll touch on. 
All the moral commands that Jesus gave, he gave knowing how evil the world would be. And he never said, love people unless, mm. fill in the blank. Right. <clears throat> it's not COVID. <laughs> I know what time we in. I know the sign of the times. So Jesus lived in a world where people didn't even recognize him as God. He had the potential to be offended, particularly at non-Christians, non-believers all the time. The Jews in Jesus' day were the believers. The Gentiles were non-believers. So when Jesus taught, he expected you, the chosen people, to know the law. That's why he just taught. You've heard it was said this. He wasn't explaining everything from the beginning. He was saying, let me tell you, what you how you misinterpret it. So he was around believers constantly. But then there were times he was around unbelievers. You never saw Jesus offended at unbelievers. He just wasn't offended at them. He wasn't appalled at their sin. He understood they don't, they don't know me. All right, so having said that, in this issue of abortion, I don't think anyone should try to convince anyone that they think it's evil or not. That's a personal conviction of yours. I don't think there's a biblical case that can be made for abortion, not being sinful, apart in certain circumstances where and even then, that's the, between that person and the Lord. But I don't think you can, you have to separate from people who disagree. I mean, Jesus did that all the time. Paul, do you know how big abortion and infanticide were in Paul's day? They were huge. I mean, you know, the government, the government, like the Roman and Greek governments, they would look at a baby and determine if they thought it was going to be strong or look. And if they didn't, they'd throw the baby, they'd kill the baby. I mean, that was common, and they said zero about it. Mm -hmm. they did, so it's not sinful to take up the cause and want to stop it, but it's not necessarily you have to do this because it's evil. There, and think about this. Why do you choose abortion over human trafficking? Mm -hmm. Why do you choose, you know, uh, criminal justice system over the homeless? I mean, the things that we know are clear are orphans, widows, and homeless. I don't see people passionate about them. Yeah. I don't see people going to the, to the mattresses for them. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it's not about like, oh, I, yeah, it's evil. I think it's wrong. I think yeah, all those things. But it's like, and I'm going to say this, and this, this is the last I'm going to say about this. Some people give you the impression that God is like, oh, my gosh, not the children. And the reality is, if you look at 1 Samuel 15 or like mm -hmm. Hosea chapter 12, God told Samuel, when you go kill the Amalekites, he said, rip the babies out of their wombs. Like when God punishes people, he intends to punish people who are pregnant. He's not going to spare these. God is sovereign over all of this stuff. So when you put it all in perspective, it's like, look, it is definitely a, a, a conviction that you can have. It's not sinful to, to even vote against it or none of that. But when you impose on other people, or you treat other Christians like if they don't feel this way. Now, it could be problematic. Again, I, I don't know the reasons why people feel the way they do. I'd have to have conversations and ask questions. I am not going to take a tweet or a Facebook post and make that your whole maturity, your whole theology. It's just unrealistic. It's like I have no idea. Sometimes you're just frustrated. You tweet something, you push back, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, you think, and it's like, Bro, I don't even, first of all, I don't even know you, right? This is Facebook. This is Facebook Community Church. Like, you don't know me beyond, you don't know none of my kids, nothing. You don't know nothing about me but what I present to you. So, 
I just think that, I, I think, I think that the, the message will answer some of that, but I, I just think with that issue, like why abortion and other, not these other things? Like what, what makes you choose that? Like does, does the Bible say like, oh, the greater stuff is what you go after and the lesser stuff not? Like nah, it's all preference, right? It's all preference driven. Even if you disagree with me, it's, it's preference driven. You're choosing, the Bible doesn't say you have to do this. There are certain things the Bible says you have to do, yeah. and picking those issues are not one of them. So, All right, thank you. Uh, this is <clears throat> the last one. Um, and uh, It says, uh, how do you nuance conversations with believers when it comes to the topic of abortion when it references saving the life of the mother or in cases of rape and incest? Um, there seems to be a lot of black and white thinking with no room for conversation in the gray area, especially for those of us who work in populations that deal directly with these issues. So, you know, I, again, and some of this is going to come out in the message, I, I just don't think issues like that are, see, you have to understand the times that we're in, right? We're not in a place right now. We've been, all of us have been psychologically affected by COVID. All of us have changed to some degree because of the last couple of years and dealing with health. I mean, you think of 2020 was about health, race, and politics. And all three of those are some of the biggest things that most people care about. We were all affected by them. We were all offended at some points, hurt at some points, and we all kind of gravitated towards people that are like-minded. And so, and then you have stuff like social media algorithms that only give you like the stuff they want you to have, the people that agree with what you think. So you think more people are riding with you than they are, and then you find out someone's not, and you're like, yo, you're outside the lines. And it's like, nah, actually, you're inside the line. You know, there's, there's a lot of people who think different ways. So I think the Bible, there are things that are clear that all believers should be united in, but then there are things that are just going to be challenging. And I think when we oversimplify things, I think one of the greatest problems today is the oversimplification of complexity. So we'll just say like, oh, this is just this. And it's like, ah, oh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You know, oh, you know, the abortion, it always focuses on women. But what about the men, though? What about men's culpability? Like, we don't really, we don't really talk about that. Do you know guys could get a vasectomy? And that has a 95% turnover rate. I'm serious. Like, you could get a vasectomy and then not get any of these women pregnant at all. Because you're not going to, abstinence is not realistic in this culture. It's not realistic. There are things that, that could happen to guys that you, the unwanted pregnancies don't happen just by a woman alone, right? right. But that's not, the, that's not the rhetoric of the conversation. Even women have been like, it's my body, my choice. Even women say that. But it's like, no, men contribute to every unwanted pregnancy. Every unwanted pregnancy happens because a man contributes in that way and probably is irresponsible in the sexual act. So now we're dealing with, Whoa, how do we, there's so many other ways to think about this and go after this. It, it just, we just blamed it on women and we just blamed it on these particular demographics and it's just more complicated than that. So when you oversimplify it and just say, this means this, I just think only God can do that. To me, the only oversimplification that, is, that everyone can make is either you believe in Jesus or not. There's no, that's the only two kinds of people in this world to me, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Everything else is complicated. Everything else is way more complicated. And when, you, when you're not confident in your identity in Christ, we're going to find our confidence somewhere. And if it's in a political identity or political, then we're going to all of a sudden be like, That's who, this, is our, this is who we're with. And we're going to 
we're going to act out the morality that those people act out. So if they're angry and aggressive and they do that, then we're going to imitate that and we're going to approve of it. And it's just not, I just don't think it's biblical. And if it is, I would love, I mean, I've asked people all the time, bro, show me where you're getting your perspective from from the Bible. I've given you five verses of why I'm saying what I'm saying. Or you're just being rude. I'm, not, I'm just challenging you because I'm saying, I'm you, this is the Bible. Like, show me where you're getting your perspective from from the Bible. I'm not talking about abortion. I'm just talking about just, just the, the character in which we attack the non-believing world. I just think it's problematic. It's problematic. And you'll hear that in the message, so. All right, I'm going to keep it moving because if I don't, then we ain't doing no message today. It's going to be just, just, my, just ask any questions and we'll just do a Q&A today. All right, thank you for your questions. They matter. They're very important. Thank you. Thank you. Because they give us a chance to clarify. And please feel free. Sometimes, you know, when we're preaching, you know, when I'm preaching in this context, I said this in the, the Burdens Different message a few weeks ago. I don't think people really understand that one, one time a week, Mike or I have the opportunity to address our church. And we have the, the, the concerns, the frustrations, the, the, the love, all the things that come into it come out into one sermon. And for some people, we might, I might say something that sounds like, oh, man, I didn't like the way he said that. And it's like, you have to understand the situation. There's a lot going on. I'm, there, there are different styles of preaching. I've been an in-your-face preacher from the jump. That's just the way I preach. I'm not a conversational dude. I'm the, this is just the way I am. And some people will get it. And it's like, man, then it, it was interesting. And somebody would be like, I ain't like the way he said this. And the next person would be like, man, I needed that word. So you just find yourself in this place of like, listen, we care about the souls of the people who are part of this church. And I can't translate that, and I can't get you, because it, it, we see things that we're like, man, we don't want this to defect the grace that God has given us in our church. And, and, and the way that God has designed me, I'm going to challenge and push back if I think anything will affect that, the bond that the God, God has given our church. So I just think when it comes to this stuff, you, there, this, this is a crazy time to live in. Everyone talks about church hurt, right, from the way they got hurt by leadership. How many times have you heard church hurt from the pastor's angle? Where the pastors have been affected and hurt by people who have judged them, left the church, all these things. And, and you don't say, and the pastors don't say anything. We just take it to the chin and let everybody else say why they left as if what they're saying is objective truth. We all have been hurt. I'm not exempt. My personality does not exempt me from being offended or hurt or whatever. I just, my... My, my role makes me persevere through it. I don't have the luxury to be like, man, I'm a fan. I ain't even going in there and teaching today. I'm not. Hey, Mike, man, it's, hey, look, I ain't coming today, man. I'm chilling. Like, I'm not even going today. I don't have that luxury. I don't have the luxury to do that. So Mike and I, we got to fight through it. We ain't take, I mean, we, when COVID hit, we was one of the eight people that had to be here week in and week out. We didn't have that luxury. And I, and I love the responsibility and I assume it. But there's going to be times where things may come across a certain way. And so it's just like, listen, we're not trying to offend anyone but we care about everyone. And there are gonna be times when that, that comes out a particular way, and if, and if that bothers you, come and talk to us about it. If you talk to everybody else about it and not us, I think that's sinful. I think it's sinful because it's gossip. It's not just a prayer request, now it's gossip or slander. We're, we're, we're approachable. There are people here who met me for the first time I have my number, and they're texting me to me. We're approachable, you can talk to us about it. But we're gonna care about these things, and in our personalities, we're going to do that. We're going to be passionate. We're going to do these things. And it happens all the time. There's some in-your-face preachers that people love. It's like, why are you mad at me? 
This person, man, Paul Washer is a dude that would make Jesus think he's not a Christian. This dude just be, people quote his stuff all the time. I'm like, man, I ain't heard Paul Washer crack a joke. Never. This dude will make you think like, wow, did he just say that? I was at a, this last thing, I was at a conference with thousands of people, 40,000 people there. He walks out on stage and basically says, many of you who are watching me right now are going to hell because you don't put genuine faith in Jesus. I looked at the dudes I was with, I was like, this is my type of dude. I was like, let, let's, see, let's see what happens. Because everybody was celebrating and jumping around, and he just cut right to it. All that clapping, yeah, Paul Washer. It was like. I was looking around like, man, let me grab my popcorn. This is going to be something. It's tough. It's tough for all of us. It's tough for all of us. But we have to press in. And we do it the best way we can. All right, in our passage today, Paul is wrapping up. He's wrapping up this letter. He's bringing it to a conclusion. And whenever Paul starts to do that, there are certain patterns that he has. He kind of, his thoughts are more rigid. Like they, they kind of real quick, like here's a verse. Then he might jump to a different thought in the next verse. And then come back. That's when you know he's kind of wrapping up. He's sort of, he's made his main arguments. And now he's just, as he's writing, He's just making sure, let me remind, oh, let, me remind them, let me make sure they remember this. Let me remind them of this. Let me remind them of this. So, and so what he does is sort of wind down through things like brief prayers, just one-liners. Let me remind you of this, different things like that. And so this, the reason I'm telling you this is because two weeks ago I made an observation about Romans 14.2. Here's Romans 14.2. It says, one person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. All right? Now, the observation that I made was that Paul was talking about the weak, but there's no designation of strong. I said, if you notice, strong is absent. So Paul isn't creating a dichotomy of, oh, the weak people do this, but the strong people are like this. I said strong is absent. Now, weak, as contextually defined, would be those who are overly conscientious about things that the Bible isn't as vocal about. Overly conscientious. And so by default, strong would be people who are a little bit, have a better grasp on things that are not as important in the Bible. Like they just have a better understanding of, okay, it's not a big deal. You know, it's not that serious. They think that way. Now, I said Paul was not creating, I think intentionally not creating a false dichotomy between weak and strong because he understands human nature. It's in human nature to think that people who are weak are the problem. And people who are weak need to be strong like the people who are strong. But Paul avoids that. He avoids that. He describes the attribute of being strong where he says, one who believes he may eat anything. So he describes the attribute, but he doesn't use the actual word strong. He focuses on what it means to be weak because it's typical for those people to be treated as such. Even in our culture today, I think a lot of the back and forth and a lot of the anger and stuff and the way that we treat people, is just, they're just people who have different convictions. Or they're, they're, they may be newer in their faith and don't process these things that way. There's a lot of different reasons why. But when you treat everyone as if they got to be strong on this, it's like then you shame people for not knowing how to think about something. Paul takes time to build up. He takes time to build up the weak so that 
you can understand how to care for people, and by doing that, he stops sort of a weak versus strong debacle. So he lays that foundation down in Romans 14, the whole chapter, and then we get to Romans 15, and now he introduces the category of strong. Now Paul brings it up, and here's what he says in Romans 15, beginning in verse 1, and I quote, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And the insult of that phone over there is insulting me right now, right now. <laughs> for whatever was written in the past, please shut that off if you can. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Jesus Christ so that you may glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. All right. There are two important things to note about the word strong here. The first is that Paul associates himself as strong. Paul associates, look, look at verse one. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. So Paul identifies himself as being among the strong. Now, the Bible doesn't say what I'm about to say. I can't prove this, but this is what I think. I think that's the reason why he waited so long to introduce the category of strong, because he didn't want people to be like, look, I'm still Paul strong. I'm like Paul. I'm strong. These people are weak. Paul waits till he explains how much care goes towards those who have a weaker conscience, who may be overly conscientious about certain things. He waits before he introduces strong, but he includes himself in this category of people. The second thing to note is that when he introduces the category of strong, he doesn't do it and draw attention to how they're strong or why they're strong. He draws attention. Look at the verse. He draws attention. Now those, now we who are strong, and he doesn't figure out how they're strong. He doesn't say why they're strong. He just says we are strong. And instead of explaining what makes them strong, he explains the responsibility the strong have. So he doesn't build it up like, yeah, we're strong because we're good with this and we're good with that and we do this and y'all, that's not what we do, that's what we do today. What he does is say, yeah, there are people that are strong, but that's not what's important about them. What's important about people who are strong is their obligation. And so he says this, he, he says this, we have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. You see, being strong or more mature doesn't make one better. It makes one responsible. We're not better if you have firm in your convictions than someone else. That's not how God sees it. How God's going to judge those of us like that is how, how well did you help? How much did you welcome those who were weaker in faith? I think some people are going to be shocked when they realize how much they insult people 
who are weaker in the faith rather than be like, man, let's welcome you. Paul doesn't think of strong as something to aspire to. He thinks of strong as a responsibility that one has towards the weak. This is different than the way we think of the world. So he gives, he gives a responsibility or an obligation, as the passage says. And here's the obligation. To bear the weaknesses of those without strength. The term without strength is really important. Here's why. Because sometimes when people are weaker in their faith or weaker about or more conscientious about things, that's just who they are. They're not doing it in defiance of being strong. That's just how they think. You see, when you treat people as if everything is about defiance, oh, you think you agree with this because you, it's like, this is just where I'm at. So he uses the category, these people are without strength, not faking, not willing, unwilling to use their strength. They just don't have it. They don't feel that way. They don't have that conviction. They don't think that way. They might not be at that place of maturity. And when you recognize that, it's not that, oh, okay, you need to correct them into being strong. That's not what he says do. That doesn't mean we don't bring correction, but we, we don't correct people into being strong. It's a big difference. So these people are without strength. And he says, bear the weaknesses. Now, bear does not mean tolerate and put up with in an annoying way. There's a way you can bear. That when I was a kid and they had this... Uh, when I, in the nurse's office, in the health room. I used to go there when I didn't feel like taking certain tests. And so there was this sign that, that with, a, with a, 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 a chimpanzee that said, grin and bear it. And for a long time, I couldn't figure out because I was like, why is a chimpanzee there? And they talking about bearing it. Where isn't there a bear right there? Like for the longest time, I couldn't figure this out. And then one day, I think it was like my 10th time that year, I went to the health room. I didn't have good grades that year. Like, I realized, no, they're talking about bear it. You got to handle it. You just got to grin and bear it. You got to tolerate it. Put up with it. That's not what he's saying right here. He's not saying put up with, tolerate in sort of a self-righteous, annoying way. Like, all right, I got to hang around these folks again. All right. Like, I'm doing them a favor by hanging around them. Like, sometimes people don't want to hang around you because you, you. Right? I know it's been like that for me. Look, we honest around here. This is Solid Rock Honest Church. When he says bear the weaknesses, what he means is to carry, to pick up, to lift up, and to remove. Right? We're, 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 we're helping people. It's not tolerating people. In a, we're helping. We, we, we carry people sometimes. We pick them up. We lift them up. We remove some of the struggles that they may have. That's what he means about bear. He's not talking about tolerate in a way that's like, oh, I mean, these people. And he says they're without strength. These are people who sometimes lack moral courage, will. They just haven't thought through that yet. All Christians are equal in the sense that we believe in Jesus, but not all Christians are equal in that we have the exact same moral compass. Because there are going to be things that we apply differently. All of us have different challenges than other people. And we're going to often be around people who we don't struggle with what they struggle with. And the temptation will be to, to try to disciple people from our strengths rather than our weakness. If you want to be good at discipling people, 
then think about where you're weakest and imagine how you'd want someone to help you when they're in that situation. We often think about how we're strong, like we don't struggle with this. And so say, hey, bro, you got to get it together. Like, why are you thinking this way? Because it's hard for me not to. And all of us have areas where it's just hard to not be that way. Even if it's obvious to everyone else, it's just hard. It's easy for you. You know, like we talk about this, like introverts and extroverts, right? It's easier for some people who are in this room to walk up and introduce themselves to other people. No problem. How you doing? My name is such and such. Nice to meet you. This is your first time here. Now, I've been here for five or six years. Oh. <laughs> right? It's easy to, it, but for some people, it's like walls are closing in. It's like breathing's getting heavy. It's like, man, when he says, all right, greet one another. Oh, no. You're looking around like, man, trying to pretend like you're reading your Bible. All of a sudden, you're reading through passages, having a quick Bible study before the sermon. You know what I'm saying? Because it's just more challenging for them. Is one better than the other? Do you say, hey, put your Bible away and go talk to somebody? <laughs> okay. You know, you know? It's like you, just, you can't do that, right? Because people don't work that way. That doesn't take away. That doesn't make them strong. They might go up and not, hi, oh, my name is. Uh... It's complicated. It's complicated. There are people that just don't have the strength. They don't have the strength. As a pastor, I feel a certain responsibility at times to push back against sentiments that cause people struggle that they don't have the courage to say for themselves. There are times when I'm up here preaching, I know that there are people in the room who feel a certain way and they're afraid to do that and I want to empower them for feeling that way. But that's going to rub some other people the wrong way and so I just take it to the chin. But I feel a responsibility to make sure that those who struggle with certain things, that it's affirmed from up here at times. You're not wrong in thinking that way and I'm not going to let anybody shame you. And there are times that's the position that I take. There are times my pushback is against knowing that there are people in this room who are being empowered by what's said because they've been shamed by other people, other believers at times, for thinking different. I feel that responsibility. And to be honest with you, before even reading Romans 15, he makes it clear that it is the responsibility. There are ways that I am stronger than many people. And so there's an obligation that I have, but it's not just me, though. This isn't a pastoral statement. It's given to every Christian. Some of us have stronger convictions about things and that we're obligated to bear, to carry, to pick up those who don't have that moral strength, don't have that conviction yet. And we don't do it. You can't correct people into holiness. But you can love them into it, though. The other obligation, the other responsibility, it says not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. I'm going to use this as a shameless plug. You know that there's a meeting coming on July 9th, and Mike and I and the leadership team have thought through what, what, where does our church need to go? Where, who are we right now? What do we need to do? Anyone who's here on the leadership team can tell you those meetings do not consist of Kurt or Mike's agenda for the church. Because if, if I were being selfish, there was a lot of things that we would do differently. But that's not where we're at as a church. That's not where we're at. We come up with things that we think will be beneficial, knowing that someone's not going to like it because there's just too many people, and we just have to we accept that. But there's a responsibility to not please ourselves. I'm only saying this to make the point 
Mike will acknowledge, he'll say our lead pastor, Kurt, comes up. In eight years of being the lead pastor, not once has anyone heard me say I'm the lead pastor. I will come up here and make fun of myself. I'm the pastor of interpretive dance. I'm the pastor of this and that. I've never said, I'm the lead pastor of this church. You know why? Because who cares? Mike has the same responsibility. He's going to stand before God and give an account too. I don't draw attention to that because who cares about it? This isn't about pleasing ourselves as believers at all. To please yourself is to, we, we don't use the fact that we understand things a little bit more than someone else in a self-righteous way. I don't use the fact that I understand the Bible probably more than most people in this room to manipulate. Now, I may say, show me where you're getting that from the Bible, but that's not to manipulate you. That's just spiritual formation, right? If you're a Christian and you say this, then it's like, okay, where are you getting that from? Because I can at least, even if I'm wrong, I will at least show you this is why I'm saying what I'm saying. Even if you don't like what I'm saying, this is what I mean when I say that. Even if you don't like that. I'm going to pick one just to make this point because this has been the hot button issue for some people. So I've chosen not to say this phrase anymore. But I've said at times, don't grow here if you can't go here. Some people have got offended at that statement. But I don't think people realize what's happening when I say that. That's actually a statement of care. Let me explain why. If you leave the church, guess what also leaves with you? You're giving. The relationships that you have with me, whatever you serve the church. My, my living comes from your giving. So if I'm telling you if you can't grow here, you should find a church where you can grow, and you take me up on that and you leave, there's a possibility that my ability to provide for my family will become more difficult. So when I say that, I'm taking the hit if you leave. That's not a statement of not caring. That's a statement of saying, I care more about your soul than I do my financial provision that comes from your giving. So if you're not growing here, I would rather you go to a place we would, that you can flourish. It's not because we don't care. It's because we do care. Because I don't want to stand before the Lord and give an account for certain things. And so if you take me up on that, then that, that could affect my livelihood. And I know every time I say that, if someone does that, that's a possibility. That statement is not given as a lack of care. It's saying, look, we care enough to say, look, we don't want to even have... I don't want to be able to provide for my family if it's not serving you. That statement is not one of pleasing myself, and it's not one of not being pastoral. For us, it's actually the opposite. It's the opposite. Because I may lose my ability to provide for my family, but you know what? But if you're flourishing wherever you are, the Lord will reward me for that. This is about pleasing ourselves. Galatians 5.13 makes this clear. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. I love that. Same author, Paul, wrote the same thing in Galatians 5.13. We don't flaunt our freedom to mock others because we understand things that you don't. That's not what Christianity is about. We're not forcing people to be in a place that they're not because it's biblical. You can't build community like that. The other responsibility, verse 2, says each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I love verses like this. 
I love these verses. You know why? Because it becomes clear the Bible doesn't just inform our beliefs. It informs our attitudes towards people who don't share those beliefs. See, a lot of us say, no, I, I, I get my perspective from the Bible. Cool. What about the attitude, though? So the truth is from the Bible. What about the attitude, though? The truth, yeah, you're a Christian. You understand theology. But where's the love? Jay-Z. Where's the love? Not calling her Jay-Z. Jay-Z said, where's the love? One of my favorite songs. Is. The Bible doesn't just inform our beliefs. It, it informs our attitude towards people that don't share those beliefs. So it's like, listen, I can hang with anybody. Jesus could hang with anybody. Jesus was around people all the time. He wasn't like, man, all these people are sinning and no one's believing in me. And what are you, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. Don't touch me unless you repent. I mean, Jesus wasn't. When Jesus said, who touched me when the woman touched him and her blood dropped, he, was, he didn't say it angrily. He wasn't like, man, who touched me? You, ain't, you don't believe in me enough to touch me. <laughs> no, he said, who touched me because genuine faith. I felt genuine faith. I want to know who that was. She was terrified because she was used to the Pharisees being like, how dare you? And what I see in the cultural context is a lot of believers like, how dare you? It's like, no, bro. I love that this verse says that each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good. Now, depending on your theological disposition, good to you will be like you need to tell people that they're sinners and need a savior. And that's good. That's good, but it's not the only good. And I don't think it's the good that Paul is talking about right here. I don't think that's what he's saying, that, oh, you just build people up and, and, and you tell them that there are sinners that need a savior. Like, that's good, and we should do that, but it's a little bit different. There's a way to build people up that don't believe that doesn't also shame. And what's interesting in this verse is he said it doesn't please his neighbor. All this time, Paul's been talking about brother. Welcome those who are weak in the faith. Right? Romans 14, 15. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. But this time, he says, neighbor, the list expands. It's not just treat other people who believe that way. Non-believers, people who don't believe in Jesus. He says we want to please our neighbor for his good. And he says to build him up. Let me give you two examples of this happening. You should be familiar with these. I've said these before. You should be familiar. Two examples of unbelievers being built up. Okay, one is in Luke 9. It's a crazy thing to me. Jesus is crazy. Luke 9, here's what it says, verse 51. Here's what it says. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined a journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he was determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Okay, 
Let's, let's just get this clear for a second. Let's pause for a second. All right. So Jesus, okay, so Jerusalem is over here. All right. Jesus is right here. If he cuts through Samaria, it goes right there. But if he doesn't, he has to go all the way around here. So Jesus says, let's go cut through the town of the Samaritans. They say, are you going to Jerusalem? You're a Jew? Nah, you can't come through here. This was the first nah, fam, in the Bible, right? They were like, nah, you can't cut through. And so James and John, who are appropriately called the Sons of Thunder, <laughs> that's their nickname, Boanerges. That's the nickname he gave them. It was for literal purposes, right? Some nicknames match what you do, right? They say, and they, this was a real question. We have no indication this is hyperbole or that these guys have a sense of humor, <laughs> right? They say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Because they didn't let you walk through their village. So should we supernaturally destroy them, Lord? Are you ready? <laughs> this is crazy. Let's destroy them for not submitting to you, Jesus. So this is funny, but sadly, this is the state of the church and the way they relate to the world today. Let's destroy the people who don't believe in you. Look at what they do. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? And this is what he says to them. Verse 55. So let me, let me repeat verse 54 so we're on the same page again. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. So they said, Lord, we should destroy him because they rejected you. And he rebuked them. When you rebuke believers today for the way they treat non-believers, they say, you're the problem. Just scroll my Facebook wall. You rebuke people for going at non-Christians as a Christian, they'll say you're in the wrong. As if the responsibility of a Christian is to constantly rebuke people into the faith. How does that build them up? How does that build them up? Like, these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. Listen, if you just, you don't even have to listen to what I'm saying. Just read the verses themselves. That's the inspired word of God. You will not come up with a different interpretation of build them up that doesn't require being angry at them. And you know what's wild about this story is that the next chapter in chapter 10 of Luke, Jesus tells the Good Samaritan story. So the people who just rejected him, he tells a story about them in the next chapter and makes them the hero of the story. That's how you build up your neighbor. He found a way to honor them, even though they just rejected him a couple days prior to that. One more example. Let me give you another example. This is Acts 17. Here's Paul. Here's what it says in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to skip around a little bit. 16 to 17. Here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. Remember that. He was deeply distressed. He was Bloom, right? He's struggling. He's deeply distressed because the city is full of idols. So it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he reasoned with them, right? Now listen to verse 22 and 23. Now remember, he's deeply distressed. 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, here's what he said to the people 
that he's deeply distressed, distressed, distressed about because of all the idols. Here's what he said. People of Athens, I see that you are an extremely, you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now think about what he said. He's deeply distressed. He's affected. When he stands in front of them, the first thing he gives them is a compliment. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are religious in every way. Diffuse them. I see that you're religious in every way. I see that you're religious. He didn't get up here and say, man, you guys are worshiping idols. You guys are going to hell. And you know what? All that's true. All that's true, though. All of it's true. But Paul said, look, I see that you, he understood, he understood something that I think we've lost in this culture. It's not presenting the gospel. It's how you present the gospel and the character in which you present it. You can present the gospel like Jonah. Man, Nineveh's going to perish in 40 days. That was his gospel presentation. Jonah, Jonah was like, Nineveh's going to perish in 40 days and then left. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And God still said, then people was like, hey, we need to repent. <laughs> so God can use a terrible presentation. But the way Jesus, Paul, these people, they understood these people don't believe. They're weak. Some of them are without strength to believe because they don't have the spirit. So he rebukes his disciples for wanting to punish them. He said, man, you know better than that. And then he, I think he, I think the good Samaritan was teaching his disciples as well. Because they would have been, they just, he, they were the only ones that knew that they just said, hey, should we destroy these folks? So when he teaches the story, they're the first ones here, like, they probably looking at each other like, dang, he was tripping. <laughs> James, John, I told you. I told you. Go ahead, Peter, man. They understood you build up. You build up unbelievers. Two examples. How do you build up believers? The whole of chapter 14. Not imposing your conscience on people. And willing to sacrifice your convictions on secondary matters if it doesn't serve your brother. Now, I've been in situations where a couple guys were going out. And I'm not, a, I'm not really a drinker um, of alcohol. But a couple guys were going out. And there was one dude that we kind of knew doesn't really like to drink. So one of the guys was like, hey, guys, I'm thinking about getting a beer. Is, any, is everybody okay with that? And I was like, man, I don't, yeah, go ahead. I don't care. I mean, you know, you ain't driving. I don't care how much. But I said, I don't care. And then the one dude, so everyone was like, no, I'm good. And the one dude was like, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I just don't, you know, you know, my, you know I have problems with that stuff in the past. But he's like, he like, yeah, but you're not going to drink, bro. And it was like, yeah, I know. And he was like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to be a drink. Man. Like, we're good. And, and, he, and, it, and, I wa and I watched this happen. And then at the end, after a couple of minutes, the dude, you could tell the dude was just getting uncomfortable. Like he felt like wrong. It's like, well, hey, man, you asked a question, and now you're shaming the dude for his answer. Yeah, yeah. So I just said, hey, fam, nah, don't drink that. Don't drink it. Let's all have Dr. Peppers. I said, I don't drink Dr. Pepper. How do you not drink Dr. Pepper? I said, no, nah, we're not drinking tonight, man. The way they came, I said, nobody, we're not drinking that. Let's just get to And my friend was like, and I said, bro, come on, man, what are you talking about? Romans 14. That's what I said to him, Romans 14, bro. It was like that. Why you say it like that? 
Are you applying Romans 14 in the way you said it? Maybe not, but right now we're talking about you right now. We're talking about you. We build up believers. This is the responsibility given to the strong. Right? So there's a responsibility, and then Paul gives us the reason for the responsibility. Verse 3. He says, For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So here's the reason we avoid pleasing ourselves, because we're followers of Jesus and we follow his example. Jesus didn't please himself. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but there's, I want to revisit the story real quick of, of what Satan said to Jesus. This is a clear example, classic example of Jesus not pleasing himself. So Matthew 4, 5 and 7. Let's go back to the story that I mentioned earlier. Here's what, here's what, the, here's what Satan said. He said, then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give angels concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The reason why I'm laughing is because this is so wild of me, for me, to me. So Satan says, if you are the son of God, and then quotes Psalm 91.11 that's applied to the son of God. So, so you try to make him think, questioning him, and then you proving that he is the son of God by using a verse to quote him. And Satan's using scripture, which means scripture is true. Even the devil knows that. So for those of you, I don't like to read scripture. The devil does, so you got to read scripture. And Jesus said, look, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Here's what Satan was saying. Look, you can jump down from this. They'll protect you, be comfortable, safe, easy, and everyone will know that you're God. Just by that, and he was like, nah. See, that would be pleasing himself. Jesus said, uh-uh. We're going to do it the hard way. We're going to do it to preaching and people rejecting me. We're going to do it to people slandering me. We're going to do it to people punching me in my face and spitting on me. We're going to do it with people whip my back open and then lay me down on the cross and hang me up that way. We're going to do it that way. You know, if Jesus was alive for 33 years, like most people think, that means he lived 12,045 days. And not one of them did he seek to please himself. 12,045 days. And everything he did was to please and benefit other people. If that's the example, then we have to follow it. It says even Christ didn't please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, he said, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So not only did Jesus not please himself, all the insults that people would give towards God came to him. The Jews in the Old Testament that, that insulted God by not believing in him are now insulting God and Jesus by not believing in him. All those insults, Jesus said, no, I took these on myself. There's a theologian named Leon Morris who wrote a great point about this. This is this verse that says, as it is written, is taken from Psalm 69.9. And the verse says, because zeal for your house has consumed me and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And here's what this theologian says about this particular verse. Here's what he says. It is significant for the way Paul's mind works that he does not appeal to any of the incidents in Jesus's life, which illustrate his point, but simply quotes scripture. For him, the Bible ends all argument. If there is a relevant passage 
and he needed to do more than draw attention to it, and that's what he does now. The psalm was uttered by a godly man of old who found people insulting God and who became the victim of those insults himself. So with Christ, people insulted God, and it was those insults that Christ bore as he suffered for his people. Paul could have drawn attention to what is more significant, that Christ bore the wrath of God in bringing us salvation, but the wrath was not apparent to those who saw what was happening while the inserts were heard by all who were there. What he's saying is, look, people didn't understand that when Jesus was being crucified, that that was the wrath of God. They didn't understand it. They just thought it was no different than the two people that were crucified beside him. They wouldn't understand that the wrath of God is happening, but they could understand the insults that were hurled at him. If you really are the Messiah, come down from there. Save yourself if you're really who you say you are. Similar to the words of Satan, if you are the son of God. He says, Paul will have in mind the evil deeds that were done against Jesus, the insults in act as well as in word, and that throughout his life. In the psalm, the godly man has a consuming zeal for the house of God, and this means that he is but of those who do not obey God. It was like this in the life and death of Jesus, and Paul sees him as the pattern and motive for Christians. As believers in Jesus, there will be insults that fall on us. When we present Jesus to people, we'll be insulted. When we stand up for righteousness, we'll be insulted. What we must do is make sure that we don't get insults because we're jerks for Jesus. There's a difference between people are offended that you're standing for righteousness and there's a lot of unrighteousness in your stance. There's a difference. It's a big difference. We need to make sure that we're discerning what direction our zeal is coming from. As much as I love what the Lord has allowed to happen in this country and I'm grateful for these things, I am not passionate about maintaining anything. I'm passionate about persevering regardless as to what happens. I'm not taking back anything for God. I'm trying to give God something that he didn't have before, which was my soul, my life, my faithfulness, and those who are like-minded. We need to discern what direction our zeal is coming from because zeal without wisdom is a biblical category for people. You can have a lot of zeal and lack the wisdom of how to communicate that zeal, how to relate to people. And I see a lot of zeal without wisdom, even from some of your favorite theologians. I'm like, wow, fam, you really talking like that? As if we don't have the category of the Pharisees in the Bible. Like we've seen this before. Jesus already went after this. He said, he told the Pharisees, you tithe mint, rue, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy, righteousness, and justice. We've seen this already. We don't need this today. I'm going to breeze through these last two points for the sake of time. He says, it's for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. I love this. 
Paul is basically saying, look, the Old Testament is inextricably linked to our endurance and faith. The Old Testament is not back then and this is now. We are to be instructed, encouraged by those. How can we be encouraged from the Old Testament? One, the promise of Jesus. Genesis 3:15, God tells the serpent, this woman will give birth to a seed and he will crush your head. And, then he, and, and one of the reasons why I believe in Christianity more than any other religion, one of the reasons why I do, because there's no, people can say a lot of stuff, oh, this is the story of Horus and all, all this stuff, right? The one thing no one can say that Christianity has is that the specific way that he would be born, how he would be treated, and how he would die was predicted a thousand years before it happened from multiple sources. You just can't find that anywhere. You can't find a historical record that happened way before him. And even Jesus can't force all of that to happen. He didn't force himself to be crucified. He didn't force none of this to happen. It just happened. It was predicted. There was a promise of Jesus that was fulfilled. That's huge. You will not find, I don't care how well a religion is crafted, you will not find that kind of specificity anywhere else. You won't find it. The other reason why we have hope is the repeated forgiveness for serious sins in the Old Testament. But them folks was just doing crazy stuff, right? Stuff that you and I would be like, man, we don't even got the courage to do that. There are ways that people talk to God, and we would be like, dang, he said that to God's face. Moses was like, man, I'm, just, I'm not good at speaking. <laughs> Moses, you're talking to God in a physical form that is terrifying, and you telling him, nah, I'm not going to speak. <laughs> huh? The Israelites had a donkey talking to them, Balaam's donkey. The donkey was talking. Huh? You saw the Lord split the Red Sea and then close it back up. You saw armies fight each other and they still sinned against the Lord. Sometimes Israel didn't even have to fight for themselves. The Lord was just like, watch this, and just confuse them. All of a sudden, they look at each other like, what? What'd you say to me? And they start sticking to them. <laughs> And they say, wait a minute, fam, we're on the same team. Man, we was in a boat together. Ah! The Lord was like, nah, watch this. Y'all don't even got to fight. Watch this. What'd you say about my mother? <laughs> it's like, what? And they still sinned against them significantly. And guess what? He just forgave them. And he forgave them. And he forgave them. And he forgave them. You know what that means? He forgives you. And he forgives you. And he forgives you. And he forgives you. And he forgives you. That's what it means. Sometimes we be bent out of shape. Oh, man, it's like the Lord is like, oh, bro, I knew you was going to do that when I created you. It takes as much faith to believe you're forgiven for your sins, and it means to be forgiven for sin. He forgives you. There's hope in the scripture. The Old Testament shows us. Man, if he forgave them, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know we're not supposed to compare, but some of us ain't sinning like some of them folks. <laughs> it's like, I remember telling somebody one time, I said, look, man, if Jesus forgave the thief on the cross who couldn't do nothing but say, hey, Lord, remember when you come in your kingdom. 
no acts of obedience, no serving the Lord or nothing. He got over. That's the ultimate getting over. You or you getting ready to die, and you just happen to be beside Jesus, and the other dude is like, man, get us down from here. And you like, hey, nah, bro, this man doesn't deserve to die at all. And they say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He has to be the happiest person in heaven <laughs> because he, he knows by the hair of his chinny chin chin, he got into the kingdom. He do nothing but just say, you are who you say you are. Right? So why do you and I struggle with love for God when many of you live every day doing things to serve the king? Right? How does a thief get in that did nothing but believe and you and I are praying, reading, talking to others, being faithful, serving, giving, loving one another, increasing in the knowledge of God, and thinking that we're not going to get in. No. That's the enemy. If you are the son of God, you daggone right you're the son of God because you believe in Jesus. And if a thief got in for believing, then imagine the rewards that are waiting for you for believing and living. That's the hope. But he says, well, it's written for our instruction that we may have hope through endurance. That's why we could, to the end, persevere to the end. It's hard. It's hard. Lastly, he says, now may the God, verse 5 and 6, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Here's the phrase, according to Christ Jesus. So the harmony is not in politics. The harmony is not in what you think about race, racism. The harmony is not in who your favorite band is. The harmony is not in your denomination. The harmony is not in whatever it is, you're a cat lover. The harmony is not in that you don't like this. The harmony, I, 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 I am a cat lover now, I have one. Don't, don't say that to me. It's my dude, it's my dude. The harmony is in according to Jesus, right? This is important to remember because Romans 14 shows us we're going to have different perspectives on things. There may even be different convictions about things. We don't have to have, share the same, the, 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 the harmony of being a one mind is in according to Jesus. So we, if we agree, everyone in here who's a genuine believer should agree that Jesus is the way to salvation. That without Jesus, we wouldn't make it to salvation. Guess what? We're in harmony with one another, according to Jesus. We're in harmony. You're not going to make it without that. It doesn't mean being in harmony about everything, particularly the secondary matters, but there are many things that many believers have in common, and we spend time bickering over the secondary matters that don't have any consequence apart from us acting outside of the spirit of God that God has given us. According to Christ Jesus, with one mind and one voice, we're united around Jesus and the truths of Jesus. We may have some differences in the way we apply things, or why we do, but there are certain things that we're united in. We're on the same mind of. This is why we were singing. Those of us who believe in him, this is why you were singing. This is why when Mike was fired up, people were clapping. I was watching people cry and be affected. That last song we sang was one of my favorite songs. My emotions kick in as soon as you start singing it. And when Manny be hitting them runs, it's like, oh, man, here we go. We're united. That's why I love to worship together, because we're united. 
We don't got to be united in all the secondary matters according to Christ. So don't believe the hype. There are going to be things that you, that we're going to grow in, we're going to have differences of perspective on. And the goal for those of us who may have a little bit more maturity, a little bit more longevity, I mean, to be honest with you, one of the beauty, beautiful things about our church that COVID was trying to take away is that reality. There are people in this church that have been here for decades. And the church has gotten younger. So they can feel like, man, we don't know where we fit in. The church is younger. It's different. But you know what? A church that has zeal needs wisdom. You see, with the people who've been here long, what I've I historically called the first gen, they got wisdom. That's why I love when Becky gets on the mic. That's wisdom talking. And what I mean by wisdom is they persevered in the Lord. They've gone through things. They've been through some challenges, and she still believes. She's up here affected at something that she's about to read. She's affected by it, not because she wrote it, but because it's true. We need that wisdom. But then we need zeal. There are people who are in the front. They're not going to be able to do as much. They're going to get tired. They're not going to be able to do as much. They need the zeal to use. That's the beauty of solid rock. Because we got people who've been here 40 years and people who've been here four weeks. It's beautiful. All different. And we need each other. This is not a young people's church. There's no such thing as that, biblically speaking. This is a church where we're trying to honor the Lord. We're like-minded not in our age and season of life, but in our faith, who we believe in. Even if we have some differences about some of the things that we may believe. Churches need zeal and wisdom. And by the grace of God, this is what our church has. And next Saturday, we're going to talk about how that's going to play out. As best as we can for the season that we're in now. Olaganjus, this is next Saturday. Next Sunday is your last Sunday, right? Y'all better thank them before they leave. Man, oh man, man, oh man. Let's pray. Father, you've, you've, you've created church dynamics where some of us are weaker in certain things. We're overly conscientious or maybe anxious about things that others are not. Some of us are just more anxious and worried about things and some of us are not. And the weak and the strong is not a dichotomy of better or not. It just defines our responsibility. Lord, we live in a culture that's systemically anxious and so we want to have a non, we want to be a non-anxious presence in this culture. Lord, I want to be a non-anxious presence to this church. You know, I love these folks. I'm grateful for this body of believers, from the newest to the oldest. Lord, help us to be a non-anxious presence in a world that thrives on systemic anxiety fears and worries. Lord, thank you that you've given us people that have been in this church for decades and people that have been here for minutes. And no matter what, Lord, no matter where our convictions are, help us to remember that we are to be united according to our faith in you. And then we work out those differences 
together, not in opposition of each other. And Lord, for as long as you'll have me to do this, may I hopefully graciously but faithfully push back against the realities of a culture that's trying to impose their convictions on us. And may we do that for one another, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. Uh, if you you need any water there's some in front of you uh in the, in the oh man thank you um so uh before we get to uh the questions well right now there's one question so if you have any questions uh you see it projected on the screen 240-623-8076 um i just want to uh acknowledge um that on, on this coming week um becky who you mentioned in the sermon becky Hutchins. Has a birthday coming up, I think on the 6th. Hey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, lesser known to most people, but a uh, longtime member of The Rock, Steve Buka, also has a birthday coming up on Steve. the 8th. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pillar in this church, though. And, Pillar and, in this church. And while, while, while I had him, we just want to thank Donna Buka, who no longer works for the church, but still looks out for the church yes, by amen. sharing those birthdays with us. So thank you very much, Donna. All right. So, uh, so the question uh, that we have right now is, um, can you explain uh, the primary matter can you explain the difference between uh or elaborate on what's primary and secondary matters of faith what they are mm -hmm. so i think one it's jesus is the way to salvation right two i think this is two i think the trinity jesus being god because if he's not god then he can't atone for our sins then he's a liar so I think you have to believe in the Trinity. So he's the way to salvation. I think you have to believe in the Trinity. And then I think, you know what, surprisingly, I think you have to believe what he says about you. I, I, I don't think that's, that's, I don't think that's, that's not non-negotiable. I think he has to believe what you, that you're a son, a daughter, a saint, a co-heir, a royal priest. A, you have to believe what he says about you. I think four, you have to believe that he, and the reason why I'm saying that is because Hebrews 11, right, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God and those who would please God have to believe that what he exists and that he rewards those who seek him so that pleases God if you don't believe that then you can't please God so you have to believe what God says about you being forgiven when you sin being included into the kingdom all those things right I think you have to believe in the destination he said I go to prepare a place for you I think you have to believe in those things uh, I mean the list could be long Go to our website and look up our statement of faith. I think you need to believe. The list is long, but I think those are things that are really core values that you have to believe. A lot of stuff are just like you're just working it out. I mean, why are there so many different denominations? Why are there so many? You're just working it out. Those are things that you just are trying to apply from what you read, but it's not necessarily what Scripture commands. So, again, the list could be 
more extensive than I'm willing to give it because of time. Mm. I'm not going to give it too much longer of a list. Um, so uh, this is a question from a different person, but it's a, along the same lines, and that is, and you sort of, you've alluded to this, but is there a way um, that we can learn um, what the primary uh, matters of faith are? Is there a Bible study or a anywhere in addition to our statement of faith that folk might be able to look to learn that? I mean, there's books out there that talk about some of these things. Uh, so is this person a member to ask that question? Yes. All right, wait till Saturday. Wait till the, Saturday. I'm going to wait till Saturday. Because some of the stuff we're going to say Saturday may help. Understand. So I'm going to wait till Saturday to actually answer that question. The, the, but by Saturday, I mean the members meeting at 11 a.m. If you are not there, I don't want to hear nothing about it. You got to be there. You got to be there. All right. Let's get to where. If you need to grab this, please do. And let's just remember once again. Again, you'll hear us say this repeatedly. There are a few things that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Few things. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anything besides like obey his commandments and those things, right? But, but Jesus specifically said, I want you to participate in a particular act to remember that my body was broken and my blood was shed. So for Jesus, it's important for believers to continually remember that he died on the cross for their sins. Why? So that you remember your sins are forgiven. Why? So that you have hope to keep fighting even when you fail. Why? So that you persevere to the end. So we don't just remember his sacrifice we remember all that that sacrifice means for us. And so we take this. We know that his body was broken on our behalf so that we could sing to him, be forgiven by him, and we'll eventually spend eternity with him. So we eat this together in memory of that. And then this, this juice represents the blood that was spilled from his body so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could persevere to the end and spend eternity with him. Let's drink together. Jesus, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you're doing in us. Lord, you, you knew, you saw all of the, you saw all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time when Satan tempted you. You knew that this would, that America would be a kingdom, that we would live in this cultural moment. And when you made up, and when you, when you explained all of the moral commands, the way we relate to people, you knew what cultures and societies we'd live in. You knew what kingdoms we'd live in, and you still said, this is the way you live. So it wasn't like we, get, we live a certain way depending on what kingdom we live in. No, we live your way in every kingdom, in any kingdom. So Lord, I pray, you know, I'm, I'm limited in my ability. I can only explain so much. I can't, I can't stop people from not doing it or being offended or whatever it is. Lord, I'm, I'm limited. But you're not. And so I pray that whatever was true today, that you would burn it into the hearts, that there would be conversations and there would be real conviction that helps us to not impose our convictions to, to really to those of us who, who are not as anxious about things as others are is to, to bear that, to carry that with them. Lift them up, encourage them. 
Lord, you said in this passage that your word, the Old Testament, is for our hope and endurance. So we have hope in the promise of you that you came. We see the overwhelming forgiveness of sin that didn't have to happen. And we're reminded that you overwhelmingly forgive us for our sin. May that guide us as we process how to live in a world where disputable matters, where secondary matters have become primary. And the primary matters, the way we're supposed to relate to people, have become secondary. Help us to keep the perspective for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Always a privilege to be here with you. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we will see you, some of you, Wednesday for D Group. Many of you, if not all of you, Saturday at 11 a.m. right here. Don't forget to stack the chairs, please. We're going to move them to the sides. Stacking the chairs up. You may continue your conversations.